Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Exactly a century after Benito Mussolini's 1922 march on Rome, which brought the fascist dictator to power, the Brothers of Italy party, which has its roots in the post-Second World War neo-fascist Italian social movement, has been elected to power. As a result, Prime Minister Maloney now leads Italy's first far-right-led government since the Second World War. I'm your host, James Rogers, and as we do so often on the Warfare podcast, it was with these contemporary events in mind, and the fact that it is 100 years since Mussolini's rise to power, that I wanted to dig deep into the history of fascism and war in Italy. Now, to do this, I've invited Professor John Gooch onto the podcast. I've long admired John's work, and it just so happens that he's got a new book out, Mussolini's War, Fascist Italy from Triumph to Collapse, 1935 to 1943, published by Penguin. Now, John is a true expert, a world-leading historian on Italy and the two world wars. He's even been honoured by the Italian government for his work. And so the end result is a masterclass on the rise of Mussolini and a surprising history that may just resonate with our current times. Hi, John. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, James. Well, thanks. I'm doing fine. And uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, telling my little story to you and your listeners. Yes. Well, I'm very excited to have you on. I've been following your work for years. As our listeners know, I delve into the history of air power. And that's where I first stumbled across your work when I was swatting away doing my studies at university. But today we're talking about a very different topic. We're talking about Mussolini's wars. And it's a perfect time to have you on the podcast, as this year marks 100 years since Mussolini's rise to power. So can you take us back that 100 years, John? Take us back to 1922. How is it that this young fascist upstart is appointed the youngest prime minister that Italy has seen ever at the time without an election by the king? Well, I think the answer to that is fundamentally that there had been two years of enormous upheaval in Italy, the red years of 1919-1920, partly as a result of reactions to the war, partly as a result of the weakness of the liberal post-war governments and dissatisfaction among many people, particularly returning soldiers, 
about what they called the mutilated victory, the failure of Italy to get as much from the war and from the Treaty of London, which Italy had signed in April 1915, as they expected. Now, Mussolini was able to play very skillfully on the politics of this, but at the same time, he was able to generate and then supervise or oversee fascist movement of the dissatisfied ex-soldiers, many of them, ex-RDT, the stormtroopers, if you like, of the Italian army, who wanted a better place in society. And they were used by landowners to repress the working classes who were looking for a better position in Italy. So there's an international dimension to this. There's a domestic, social, political, domestic position to this. Then I suppose the third part of the cocktail is the fact that there was considerable tacit support for Mussolini and the restoration of order, because this is what the fascists and the March on Rome seemed to be going to offer Italy after these tumultuous years. There was a, a tacit military support from most of the hierarchy and the army for the fascists when they marched on Rome uh, in 1922, October 1922, because partly they recognized former soldiers, partly they thought that the military had not been treated properly after the war by the politicians, and partly because they saw a restoration of a conservative order. And here we get back to the final point of your question, a conservative order in which, as far as they could tell, the king would remain the monarch and the head of a parliamentary democracy. So those were the channels, those were the currents that came together in October 1922. So is it safe to say that we can start to see already the parallels between the rise of Hitler and the rise of Mussolini, this disillusionment with the established order, the fact that so many lives have been lost during the First World War. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Italy had a similar attrition rate, a similar amount of losses to that of Great Britain during the First World War. And so this was really a period where Italy was seen as losing its grandeur and a time at which it needed to, to put its stake back on the global scene. This is very much the case. Italy lost 670,000 dead in World War One, And if you do the arithmetic and compare it to British losses, which lasted longer, uh, the war took a longer time for Great Britain, of course, then pure Mano more or less, they equate out. So the effort that was put into the war by Italy was certainly, from its point of view, from its position, I would say equal to that that Great Britain had put in. Of course, Italy's role in the war was much denigrated often by Western politicians, which didn't make them any happier, of course. But getting back to the central point that you ask, Mussolini wanted Italy to recover its place and to improve its place, let us say. Far from being the least of the great powers, as she'd traditionally been known, Mussolini wanted to make Italy once again a new Roman Empire. So one propelling force in his personal, we could almost call it a crusade for power, one personal element is that desire for Italy to recover the respect that he thought she should have. 
the empire that he thought she should have and other countries after the other powers after the first world war were expanding their empires the british empire was at its greatest extent after the end of the first world war so there was imperial ambition Mussolini was also able to play on themes in pre-war 1914 Italian foreign policy, which were expansionist, the difference being that Mussolini's policies and intentions, I think, were, to my mind, were always from the start underpinned by a readiness when the time was right to use force. And that, of course, was a strong contrast to pre-1914 liberal Italy. Liberal politicians had manoeuvred in the gaps in international politics. Mussolini was going to force his way to the top of international politics and bring with him a proletarian nation. And Germany and Italy were in that respect partners in his mind and in Hitler's because they were proletarian nations. They were the have-nots and they were going to become the haves. So take us through that interwar period. If one wants to rebuild the Roman Empire, where does one start? <laughs> well, where Mussolini started was in Libya, which Italy had taken in 1911. But when the war broke out for Italy in 1915, almost all Italian military garrisons were withdrawn because of the demands of the, the war on the Italian front. So Italy only had four small footholds left on the coast of Libya. From actually just before Mussolini came to power, in 1921 that is, there are clear signs that Italian politicians wanted to recover Libya. And when Mussolini came to power, there was no question that this was his first intention. So from 1924 onwards, he first introduced fairly aggressive governors into Libya, then allowed them to unleash a military campaign led by a man who would figure quite large in World War II, Marshal Graziani. And by 1931, Graziani and others had completely suppressed Libya at considerable cost to the Libyans, introducing the equivalent of, we can call them almost, concentration camps to pen Libyans in and control them. So by 1931, the first step had been made. At the same time, Mussolini was conducting a political strategy at home, which to sum it up, turned 1920s fascist Italy, that is from 1922 to about 1931, turned fascist Italy from an authoritarian regime, which is how it began, to a totalitarian regime, which Mussolini turned it into by the 1930s. So he was expanding his own power, but he was still very dependent upon the conventional levers of power in Italy and by levers of power, I'm talking essentially about the three armed services. I'm talking about the army, the navy, and the air force. Because by this time, he had so organized domestic politics that the parliament, the chamber as it was called, was nothing more than really a talking shop to support his ideas. The king, a rather, well, let us be polite, a quiescent figure in Italian politics. Some Italian and other historians are much more brutal in criticizing the king. king was passive. The king was prepared to allow Mussolini to continue what looked like a successful path. So where does he go next? Well, where he goes next is where a lot of Italian people wanted him to go and that is Ethiopia, as the Italians call it, Abyssinia, as we call it. 
Why Ethiopia? Well, essentially for two reasons. One, a geopolitical reason. It's expanding. It's the second step in the expansion of this fascist Roman Empire onto the Red Sea, which actually opens the possibility for further expansion partly into the Indian Ocean. The Italian Navy want to get out into the Indian Ocean. So that's the first reason. The second reason is revenge. Revenge because on the 1st of March 1896, an Italian army had been smashed by Ethiopians. And that was a humiliation that all Italians felt. If you go to Rome today, there are statues in the center of Rome recording what were, in effect, defeats by Italian generals in Ethiopia in the 1880s and 1890s. So back to Ethiopia. And it's also a test run. This is the third thing, I think, as we see in the book, the third thing to understand. And that is that there have been developments in the way particularly that the Italian army sees its role as fighting, how it intends to fight. So Ethiopia allows a test run for that. And it turns out to be a success. So this starts to lay the grounds for a very overly ambitious and perhaps overconfident Mussolini. It makes sense in his grand plans about why you would try and take Abyssinia, Ethiopia, because like you say, you need to have that gateway to the Indian Ocean. And this could really put Italy on the tracks to having, you know, global trade and global supply lines that would allow it to expand its borders as he wishes to do. But there's one thing that's always fascinated me about this point in history is when does Mussolini start to become involved with Hitler? Is it Hitler that is inspired by Mussolini's earlier campaigns or is it Mussolini that's beguiled by Hitler's domestic successes? Well, I would say first of all that in the very early 1920s, Hitler is beguiled by Mussolini as the first fascist duce, the first dictator. And there's an admiration which I think continues right the way through up until 1943 and just about beyond then for an admiration of Hitler for Mussolini. The contacts between them really only develop in the 1930s with Hitler's visit to Italy and Mussolini's visit to Germany to 1934, 35, 36, at the time that these wars are going on. The relationship between them, well, historians differ as to the balance of that relationship. I think Mussolini certainly regarded himself as at least an equal to Hitler, or shall we say he was determined to be an equal to Hitler. So in his mind, it was a partnership. In Hitler's mind, I think it was a fellow dictatorship, fascistic in its using fascistic with a small f rather than a big F, which is when we talk about Italian fascism, fascistic in its nature. The problem with it was that while both the heads, both the leaders uh, got on quite well with each other, partly because they both shared a loathing for Victoria, Vittorio Emanuele III. Neither of them liked him very much. But partly they got on well because they had similar outlooks 
on how to conduct international affairs and how to lead their country to the places that they wanted to be, places in the sun. And both could be very charming men in company, as indeed we now know could Stalin. But both, I think, shared a fundamental brutality, a fundamental violence, a fundamental willingness to achieve their goals regardless of the costs. So there is a symbiosis. Some historians would argue that it is there from the start. Others now argue that it certainly is developing as national socialism comes to power in Germany in 1933, then as Hitler does away with the SA in 1934, and the German machine, in a sense, start domestically starts to run faster. And in fact, Hitler does write to Mussolini and say, what you should do is what I've done and get rid of some of these... Uh, wastrels that you've got around you. So uh, there's a dynamic of, as it were, two men leading their countries with a regard for one another, but decreasingly side by side, because of course, Hitler pulls ahead, because Hitler turns the motors of international relations much faster between 1936 and 1939 than Mussolini. And in one sense, Mussolini is following along behind by 1939. So politically, they've been aligned for a while during the interwar period. But like you say, Hitler starts to move ahead. When is it that Mussolini decides it's a good time for him to become militarily aligned with Hitler? Mm, that is a very good question. And different historians would give you different answers. But I think that probably it was always on the cards from the moment that Hitler came to power that there would be a close alignment. There are historians who argue that it doesn't really happen until around about 1938, and that the driver, the motor, if you will, for that was actually the way that fascist Italy had been mistreated by Great Britain. Now, that is, to some of us, a rather perverse argument, and one can trace hostility towards Great Britain, one could raise Mediterranean ambitions, not just Mediterranean actually, but also Balkan ambitions and North African ambitions. But one can see these in Mussolini from certainly from the early 1930s onwards. So I would say that we can say with us some certainty that by 1936, the convergence of the paths of fascism and national socialism is becoming narrower and tighter and closer. And the thing that really, I think, kicks that off is the Spanish Civil War and the participation of both sides in it. And after the Spanish Civil War is over in 1939, they're together. Of course, you have the exchange of expertise, of strategies, of military technologies. And it's at this point by 1939, where the Second World War begins in Europe, that you can see the two are thick as thieves. But Mussolini doesn't declare war on the Allies at the same time as Hitler, does he? He waits for an opportune moment. That's right. In March 1939, he signs a pact, an agreement, in the hope with the Germans that there will not be a war, at least until 1942-43. In his calculation, which I think actually was a miscalculation anyway, but in his calculation, the development of his three armed forces but particularly probably of his air force and also his army, would be at a stage by 1943 where they could take a full part alongside a very obviously militarized Germany 
in order to recover the position and gain the position that they wanted to have. So there is a willingness on Mussolini's part to contemplate war, but a hesitation, partly because, as I say, he's aware that the military are still developing and expanding and they are not yet ready for war, partly because he thinks that he calculates that by 1942-43, he will be strong enough to take sufficiently major part in a European war to be on an equal footing with Hitler and to be able to take a full share in the division of the spoils when the war is over. So I think there's no doubt he would have wanted to go to war earlier than he did. But at that point, as I say, March 1939, through the winter of 1939 to the beginning of 19, spring of 1940, he has been restrained by the fact that he's aware that economically, militarily, Italy is not yet fully ready. That, by the way, is a cause for him to berate his military from time to time about failing to produce the armed forces that he wants to do what he wants. But they're not ready. And then Hitler pulls the trigger by invading France. And essentially, Mussolini feels he has to join in. So it sounds to me here, John, that uh, if Mussolini had listened to Hitler, he would have been ready for war. It was almost written in the tea leaves that he hadn't got industry ready. And if it's going to take you to 1943, well, there's many historians that argue that the war is already over for Hitler and for Mussolini by then. Well, I think there's no doubt that the war is certainly over for Mussolini. And in many senses, I think he was on a losing path. Some historians would say by December 1940, with the setbacks in North Africa and the end of the so-called parallel war, that this is what forces Mussolini to go cap in hand to Hitler and to require help that help doesn't suffice ultimately to resolve the position, for example, in, in North Africa. There are various reasons why it doesn't work. My feeling, and I think the argument that is in the book, is that the weaknesses known and unperceived by Mussolini within the military and economic system and the ineptitude of Mussolini as a military strategist together mean that they downhill path began before December 1940, and that it was only a matter of time before the fascist regime had to turn to Italy for the reasons that you have just pointed out, the uh, backwardness of the industrial system, the complexity, the lack of um, development of modern weapons and armaments because of the way that the consortia worked in, in Italy, which held things back. There were other drawbacks to do with the technological backwardness of much of industry and some of the armed forces, including the Navy. But by 1943, well, everything is going to hell in a handcart as far as fascist Italy is concerned. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, 
From familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, we know, of course, the Allied invasion comes around this point, John. But take us back just one step and map out the fronts that Mussolini's trying to fight on here. So he's got a weak industrial sector and a weaker military than he would like. But if I remember correctly, he opens war on many fronts. Some would say too many fronts. Oh, absolutely. He's fought two wars before we get to World War II in 1939. And there is clear evidence that the cost of fighting those wars was one of the reasons why the Italian military forces were not ready for war in 1939-1940. The cost in two senses. First of all, the literal financial cost of putting those forces into Spain and into Ethiopia. But secondly, the cost in terms of manpower and particularly trained officers and trained men. That was particularly true of the Air Force, actually. So there is a cost to this. I'll add a third element. Uh, It's a kind of negative outcome of both of those wars, which is that neither the army nor the air force actually learned the lessons that they could have learned about what was wrong with their doctrines and their 
their techniques that they were developing and how they might have uh, improved those. There's a bit about that in the book, so that explains itself. So 1940, yes, 1940 onwards, Mussolini is fighting seven wars or campaigns, four of them at the same time. He's fighting a brief campaign against France. It only lasts four days, followed immediately by one against North Africa, which, of course, lasts, as you say, right up until 1943, followed by another in Greece from October 1940 to April 1941, then into the USSR in 19 Soviet Russia in 1941 to help Hitler. We come back to a point you, we were talking about earlier. Why go to uh, join yet another war in July 1941? Well, in order to make sure that fascist Italy, that Mussolini had his place at the peace table. And to do that, Mussolini thought Italy must show that she had sacrificed. She had spent blood, treasure, and men, and therefore deserved that place, the sort of way that fascists did tend to think. So there's Greece, there's the USSR, there's an ongoing war in the Mediterranean, which of course lasts right through 1940, 41, 42 to September 43 and the fall of Mussolini. We get to number, what is it, number six, which is the brief campaign in East Africa in the end of 1940, beginning of 1941, and number seven, which is the Balkans, a very bloody and messy business, which goes on from 1941 to 1943. At least four of those are going on at the same time. And they are far beyond the reach of fascist Italy, but Mussolini never seems to be able to appreciate this. That is incredible. I knew it was bad. I knew it was thinly stretched, but I didn't know it was that bad. I mean, under-resourced, understaffed, and overstretched is really an understatement, to be fair. Why were his generals not turning to him and saying that, you know, this is enough? We need to focus on our, our key strategic theatres around Italy to protect our borders and expand from that point onwards. If you want to create the Roman Empire, then Rome needs to be strong. Mm. Okay, I'm going to answer this at two historical levels, if you like, or two historical time points. There were a couple of generals before the Second World War began, virtually in June of 1940, a couple of generals who tried to say to Mussolini, don't do this. One of them in the summer of 1936 was the then chief of the general staff, General Baistrocki, who said to Mussolini, don't get involved in the Spanish Civil War. It's a quagmire and it will cost more than we get. Actually, the Italian intelligence service said the same thing. Mussolini took no notice because he was propelled by those political, ideological motives that we talked about earlier. In the summer of 1940, just before the declaration of war in 10th of June, the then chief of the general staff, Graziani, here he is again, says to Mussolini, I've only got 15 divisions. They're not mobile divisions, so I can't fight a mobile war, and the most I can do is fight one war at a time. And Mussolini takes no notice. Mussolini regarded his soldiers and sailors and airmen, I think, as functional subordinates. When he turned the key and started a war, they were supposed to produce the goods. Come back to your the second part of this answer, and why do they not once the war has started, why didn't, does nobody else try to do what Paistrocchi and Graziani have tried to do? Well, I suppose part of the reason might be that people saw that they tried and failed. But a more uh, serious answer is that 
the way that Mussolini ran the war from the top, which was very pyramidical, and which the king allowed him to do by handing to Mussolini de facto command of the armed forces, which in constitutional terms was the king. So Mussolini became the political authority, and he chose as his immediate subordinates generals who, for the most part, were prepared to try to produce the results that the Duché wanted. The reason for that is essentially, I think, the way that Mussolini addressed his generals. What he told them was essentially, and sometimes almost in these words, soldiering is your business, military activity is your business, politics is mine. I will decide the political moments to strike and the places for political reasons that we will strike, and you will then carry out my orders. I think one can have a, a modicum of sympathy for fascist generals in this sense. Soldiers are professionals. They're engaged in a war. Their object is to try to win and to achieve results. And a lot of generals fought in order to do that. Their misfortune was that they fought for a regime which was horrendous in almost every respect. But they were soldiers of their country and of their king, as well as Mussolini. There is a story in part of the world that I operate about a, an Italian officer asking a British defence attaché in Rome a few years ago, well, who are the best 10 generals that the British had? And the defence attaché reeled off 10 names. And then the Italian said, oh dear, I think we can probably only have two or three. Now, there's a quote that says something negative about Italian generalship. For the most part, I think they were soldiers who were struggling to achieve what their political masters wanted because many of them believed for different reasons and perhaps in different facets of fascism. So they believed in the nationalism of fascism. So they believed in the recovery of Italy's status. We know this because British intelligence was listening to the conversations of captured fascist generals, and we hear them talk. I put some of this into the book. We know that they think that fascism had achieved a great deal in the 30s. It had been economically important and had generated a degree of social recovery. They had all sorts of reasons to be fighting, including fundamentally their oath of loyalty to the king as I say, was constitutionally the head of the military. So this is a machine that is, if you like, being driven in entirely the wrong direction by the man who's at the steering wheel, and the man who's at the steering wheel is Mussolini. But the thing that worries me there, John, is that if you've got a military that is so entwined with the politics of fascism, and we know that Mussolini wanted to create this fascist class of officers, then does that not mean that you're promoted based on how loyal you are to the cause, as opposed to how great you are as a military strategic thinker? <laughs> yes, certainly it's the case that it was necessary to be, or at least appear to be, a loyal fascist in order to climb up the tree hierarchically. I think there's no question about that. How many of the senior members of the armed forces actually were members of the fascist party. Well, in some cases, like the Air Force and the Navy, for example, it seems to have been relatively few. But that is not to say that the rest were not prepared 
to march to the fascist tune, if you like to call it that. It's quite difficult to know the strength and the extent to which the leading figures in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force were deeply fascist. I come back to those overheard conversations that I mentioned a moment ago, which do feature a bit in the book, in which these are men who've been captured. So while at the same time they talk about things about fascism that they're like, including sometimes racism and including, I'm afraid, in some cases, the anti-Semitic policies of fascism, which some of them approved of. Again, there's a bit of evidence about that in the book. But what they all say is, of course, the problem was Hitler. We all knew he was a madman, but we had to obey orders. Well, they're talking after the fact. And there is no July 1944 plot as such. But it is the case that the military do eventually decide in the spring of 1943 that Mussolini is leading Italy to disaster, that he won't listen, and that the line that the country takes must change, and that that produces the rather complicated events. They're a subject of a whole chapter in the book in July and August 1943 when Mussolini actually falls. But the generals, we have to remember, a lot of them were very, and colonels, they were very highly decorated officers from World War I. Many of them were very brave men. They had had a great deal of military experience. Their problem was, in essence, that the military experience they had was fundamentally limited because they had not fought the kind of war that the British and French armies fought in the last hundred days, a war of movement, a war of a new style war, if you like. That goes into the area of the kinds of war ideas about tactics and strategy that they actually develop, of which, again, there's a bit in Mussolini's war to explain that. Well, John, take us into those final months of the war for Mussolini. This is a man who, I suppose you could say much like Hitler, is driven by his pig-headed arrogance as a dictator and his blind dedication to the politics of his cause. And all of this is part of his undoing. And like you say, I read that amazing quote in your book. And, and you do break down those characters of the officers so well. We're able to, to kind of see what drives them and where things go wrong. But there was a few of them who had said that Mussolini had been mad for four years, which is not exactly what you want in your political leader. So take us into those final months. How does the war end for Mussolini? Well, there's a considerable amount of plotting going on, really from around about November, December 1942. It's very clear that the war in North Africa is going badly. It starts to become very clear that the Italian and German hold over North Africa has only weeks or months to run. And senior military figures start making their way to the Quirinale, which is the king's palace, and start saying, well, things have got to change. At the same time, Mussolini in January, uh, in February, early February 1943, changes his chief of armed forces defense staff, the soldier who's right at the head of the pinnacle below him. And the new man realizes that there is no way that Mussolini is going to be able to lever, to argue for a redirection of Axis strategy away from the Russian war and to the Mediterranean, which is the war they're losing. So the soldiers start to develop an attitude, which means that they are prepared, if the circumstances are right, 
to abandon Mussolini. They're not yet prepared for any sort of South American military coup. The second element then, because onto the scene comes the fascist party, because the fascist Grand Council, which has not met at all during the war, the senior overarching body of the fascist party, decides that it will meet on the 24th, 25th of July in order to discuss removing Mussolini from the head of the government and replacing him with their own choice, Italy's leading, Italy's most famous soldier from World War I days in Europe beyond, Marshal Badoglio, who has himself, by the way, been having under-the-counter negotiations with the Allies via a back channel uh, about uh, replacing Mussolini. So two things are happening together here. The first is that the body of fascist leadership is deciding that Mussolini is no longer suited to being head of state. They don't necessarily want to throw him off the ship, as it were, but they want to remove him from office. The military are prepared to support a move, and there is a man standing in the wings. This is the third part of the triad, if you will, and that is Marshal Badoglio, much admired World War I hero, not without some controversy, again, explained a little bit in the book, but a World War I hero and a man who the king trusts. So we put all these three things together. On the 25th of July, the fascist Grand Council, about three o'clock in the morning, uh, it votes by a majority for Mussolini to be removed as head of government. The army has been readying itself for such a takeover and is ready to have Mussolini arrested and taken first of all to the Carabinieri headquarters in Rome. And ultimately, he goes on a, a little voyage to well, a voyage to Sardinia, uh, to the island of Ponza, and then to the Grand Sasso, to the hotel in the Abruzzi, from which he is rescued ultimately on the 12th of September. So this is what has happened. Mussolini has been arrested, and we get a very strange period of 40 days in which the Italians are trying to extricate under Medolia, trying to extricate themselves from the war, negotiating with the Americans particularly, while at the same time trying not to let the Germans know uh, that they are doing their very best to end the Axis partnership. It's a very tense time in Italy and a very complex time, but the final outcome of those negotiations is that the Italians clumsily, but only clumsily, accepts the Allied offer of an armistice and essentially a changing of sides. Um, I say clumsily because large parts of the fighting army, particularly in the Balkans, are not told this is going to happen. And then on the night of the 8th, 9th of September, 1943, while Mussolini is imprisoned in this hotel up on the Abruzzi, the king, Badoglio, and the senior military hightail it from Rome and head south to the arms of the Allies, <laughs> leaving their soldiers as victims, and some of them, thousands of them were shot by the Germans, as victims of this clumsy and inept surrender. Many people then and now have never forgiven either Badoglio or the king for this bizarre circus that happens in 8th, 9th of September, 1943. And it is one of the reasons why in 1946, Italy voted to get rid of the monarchy. Well, John, thank you so much for your time today, for taking us through this detailed history from the rise of Mussolini 
to the full. And I guess this has to be my final question. I may have even just given it away a little bit. How did the war end for Mussolini and for Italy? And I suppose that they ended in very different ways for each of them. They certainly did. And the least complicated question, I think, is the first one, because Mussolini was rescued by German forces, an SD officer called Scorzini, on the 12th of September 1943, and taken first to Munich to meet Hitler, and then sent back to northern Italy to run the puppet regime, the rump fascist regime, the Repubblica Sociale Italiana, the Italian Socialist Republic, literally translated. But Mussolini was essentially a prisoner of the Germans throughout that time. Indeed, he had to sign, and probably willing to sign, the death warrant of his own son-in-law, Galeazzo Ciano, at the end of December 1943. The people that the fascists could catch who had signed the fascist Grand Council decree decanting Mussolini, the people they could catch were put on trial, and all but a couple of them were sentenced to death, including his son-in-law. Now, that is an example, really. Edda, his Mussolini's daughter and Ciano's wife, put as much pressure as she could on her father to let him go, but he clearly felt he couldn't, and that itself speaks to the extent to which he was under the control, under the thumb of the Germans, which is where he remained up until April 1945. As the regime rapidly collapsed uh, in the summer, early summer of 1945, Mussolini decided to try to flee to Switzerland and joined a convoy of German soldiers. He was sitting in the back of a truck wearing a German sergeant's overcoat and carrying, apparently, a valise full of documents that he thought was important and large amounts of money and jewellery, all of which went missing. This caravan was stopped by partisans on the east side of Lake Como. He was spotted. He was taken out with his mistress, Claretta. They were taken to a villa where they were kept in prison for about 24 hours, and they were taken out and machine-gunned to death at the gates of the Villa Feltrinelli, which is still there. I think it's now a hotel, I'm not sure. And I think, in fact, you can stay in the Mussolini suite, but I'm not sure about that. Anyway, Mussolini is shot to death by the uh, partisans. Nobody knows either who gave the order, if an order was ever given, to execute Mussolini. He may have gone the way of Ceausescu, that's to say almost an extemporized killing, and nobody actually knows who shot him, though there have been a number of people who've claimed that honour over the past years. That happened, as I say, on the 28th of April. The bodies were taken to Milan and strung up uh, upside down at a garage in Piazzale Loreto in Milan. There is a little after story. Um, after Mussolini's body was cut down, several things happened to it. First of all, a slice of his brain was taken out by the Americans to discover whether he did or did not suffer from syphilis, as many historians thought and still some think he did. I'll come back to that point in a moment. The body was taken away, it was hidden, it's been found, it's eventually, after about 10 or 15 years, it was taken to the town of Mussolini's birth, uh, Rocca San Casciano, which is in the Romagna in eastern Italy, and now it is under a great big sarcophagus, and it is increasingly 
the place of pilgrimage for a number of neo-fascists. In the meantime, I think around about 1967, this last piece of Mussolini's brain was returned by the, the Americans with a literal note saying, no sign of syphilis. So as far as we know, that widely told story wasn't, in fact, true. So exit Mussolini, what happens to Italy? Italy tears itself apart from April, uh, domestically tears itself apart from uh, April 1945. There's a great deal of score settling to be done inside northern Italy, and fascists of the last Republican regime were hunted down by the partisans, and many of them were killed. As happened in so many countries across this period, as the Allies swept through and the war was coming to an end, it was the, the partisans who were taking revenge for the many years of being suppressed. And, you know, it happened in Denmark, it happens in France, and, you know, it's an incredibly yeah. difficult, tumultuous period for these nations. It is absolutely that. And other things were happening on the Italian borders as well, for instance, in Trieste and in what is now Croatia, the communists, Tito's communists had arrived and for a number of months they were busy killing Italians who they thought were fascists, whether they were or not. So all around the edges of Italy as well as uh, uh, in the north, there was a, a considerable degree of bloodletting going on. What actually saved Italy, I suppose, was the rapid onset of the Cold War in 1946 and the adoption of Italy by the Western powers as a bulwark against communism. And that had two powerful political consequences for Italy. The one which played itself out in the 1990s was that with American money and American encouragement, the conservative Christian Democrats came to power and they maintained their hold on power for about 45 years. The other consequence which perhaps has had a longer afterlife, is because of that, a number of trials and accusations of war crimes against Italians either never took place or were rapidly scotched. And that means that unlike Germany, which began to face up to its past in the 1960s, many historians would agree that Italy has never fully faced up to its fascist past for that reason, and hence the echoes that we find today, and they are more than some. Well, I was going to ask you about this, John. No podcast on Mussolini could be complete without us talking about the election, the rise to power of Prime Minister Maloney, the first far-right government since the Second World War. How is Mussolini represented, portrayed within Italian politics today? Is he seen as someone to aspire to? You mentioned there is almost this shrine that remains to him, something that you could not imagine in Germany when it comes to Hitler. Germany being a country that has fully tried to deal with and grasp and educate about that fascist history, and like you say, Italy that hasn't. So how is he represented in Italy today? And actually, is it because they haven't faced that history that the far right has been able to rise again? I think the answer to the last part of your question is a fairly straightforward yes, that it's still possible to create a very positive picture of Mussolini. There are a great number, an increasing number of younger Italian historians who are writing up what 
we might call the underside of fascist Italy, the brutality, the crimes that went on, for example, in the Balkans, um, and to a much, much lesser extent, but they did happen in Russia, the background of the brutality of Italian colonialism going back to 1911. These things are being discussed by historians. But the broader answer to your question is that the Maloney coalition is an uneasy three-part coalition. Georgia Maloney herself has given very, very recently a speech in which she rejects fascism and says that she is going to stick to the European Union. On the other hand, she has got the right-wing parties like Forza Italia and Berlusconi, who do offer, who bow, as it were, from time to time to Mussolini, and they like to offer that easy phrase that Italy needs government by a strong leader. And that allows a great deal of resonance for those who still find Mussolini a figure that they are prepared to look up to. So I think <laughs> the jury is out on Georgia Maloney. Will she stick to this rejection of fascism? Uh, will she be pressured in certain directions by the other two members of her coalition party. How long will that coalition last? Italian politics suggests it won't last all that long. It's uneasy, but there are certainly still quite a lot of people who think more of Mussolini than perhaps some of the rest of us do. I always find it surprising when I talk to Italian friends or colleagues. You know, so many of them, of course, will be pro-democracy against any sort of dictatorship. But every now and then you'll hear a, a kind of side comment that says, well, you know, Italy's a country that perhaps thrives better under a dictator, under more authoritarian rule. It brings stability. And it's, you know, you can see it after many years of not being able to form a government that remains in longer than 18 months or a year. But um, it's a worrying path to go down, John. Now tell us, if we want to learn much more about Mussolini, where can we read your work? Well, the most recent book, which is Mussolini's Wars, which was published by Penguin, I think, about 18 months ago and is now out in paperback. That's the last of a quartet of books. The other one, I guess, that the quartet takes Italy's military history from 1861 to 1943. So two of the four books are pre-Mussolini. But the other one that I've written, which is a fairly hefty tome, I'm afraid, is called Mussolini and His Generals, and that charts the path of Mussolini, the military and fascist foreign policy from the end of World War I to the beginning of World War II. So that is, if you like, the preamble to the most recent book, Mussolini's War. Wonderful. Well, go out there and buy the complete works of John Gooch, and we'll put a link to your latest book in our show notes. John, thank you so much for your time. You are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. James, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.